Welcome to another episode of The Art Salon. I hope you have been enjoying the podcast. Last week, I posted our first bonus episode. I hope you check it out. If you would like to support the podcast, there are several ways to do so. Number one, share it and spread it around. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Two, message me with any potential guests you think might be interesting. And three, if you want to support the podcast monetarily, there's an option to do so via anchor.com or contact me directly through at the Arts Along on Instagram. Today's guest is the great John Wallace. John is one of the trumpet's leading scholars and one of its main practitioners. His work with composers throughout the 20th century has left a rich legacy of pieces that are truly spectacular. In this, his work with Peter Maxwell Davies is particularly salient. As a thinker, he is unparalleled. And I wanted to have him on because he's one of the trumpet's most educated and interesting advocates, and a gentleman through and through. As my friend Jonah Levy said to me once, I would tune in to hear John speak about anything, even if he was only reading a phone book. John is a rare breed in the trumpet world, a true academic. Despite not having a PhD or a DMA, he has arguably produced more useful research than anyone in the field. This includes his seminal work, The Trumpet. It is astounding to me that with the amount of people in America pursuing DMAs, it takes somebody like John to investigate thoroughly. This makes me question what all these people who now get to call themselves doctor, indeed they often insist on it, are doing to advance the research in our field. The bar is laughably low in the brass community to achieve the highest academic degree, and it shows. This is of course a missed opportunity. As my conversation with John reveals, there is a lot of research to be done that could be useful, and a lot of issues in the industry that need important exploration, and the people meant to be doing it insist on continuing to issue re-editions of method books and 10-page dissertations on bad music. A lot of these people are not suited for academic work and have chosen the DMA route as a way to get employed at higher education institutions. But as an article in The Economist, The Disposable Academic, reveals, this might not be such a good idea financially. The number of people pursuing the mythical three-letter addition to their signature in every field has been growing at staggering rates. The overwhelming supply of candidates and graduates has made the pyramid scheme finally collapse. I recommend people look up the article, but statistics even confirm that a PhD or a DMA no longer offers any financial benefit over the much easier MA. In many fields, it can even reduce your financial acumen. So if this is no longer financially viable, can we at least hope to expect some original research to come from people earning these useless degrees? Or must we continue to stomach this fictitious excuse for anti-intellectualism? People like John Wallace should be the benchmark not the outlier. Before setting off, I would like to read the foreword to John's book, written by Peter Maxwell Davies. It is a great privilege and pleasure to introduce this most necessary and inspiring book on the history of the trumpet by two of its foremost exponents. As I shall explain, I have had a positive, but at times tortuous and checkered relationship with the trumpet world, and I feel I must join John Wallace and Alexander McRayton in encouraging stimulus, experimentation, change and transformation concerning any received ideas as to what the trumpet is. Its world is always in a state of metamorphosis towards circumstances beyond our imaginings, as this book proves over and over again. Perhaps I should apologize for being so personal, but I think it important to understand that the first music I heard, along with popular music of the late 1930s, was brass band music, on long weekend walks with my parents in Peel and Boyle Hill Parks, Salford. The great difference was that the brass music in the bandstands was live and made your spine tingle. 
whereas the popular dance tunes were either on the wireless or the tiny wind-up acoustic gramophone. I always waited for the cornet tunes in Sampa and Poet and Peasant Overtures, and a lifelong love was firmly established. It was my fellow student and anarchist at the music department at Manchester University and the Royal Manchester College of Music, Elgar Howarth, who, in the mid-50s, deepened and encouraged my love of the trumpet, so much so that in 1954-5, I wrote him a sonata for trumpet in D and piano, which became my opus one. This was first performed to an audience of six in the Little University Concert Hall in 1955 by Elgar Howarth and John Ogden. I sent this score to the Society for the Promotion of New Music in London, hoping for its acceptance for performance into their new Wigmore Hall concerts, but it was refused and returned with elaborate explanations as to why it was technically impossible for the trumpet to play. Instead, Howarth and Ogden played it at a London Arts Council concert, causing quite a scandal. It was next performed at the York Festival, but Ogden had been forbidden to play it by Manchester College, as that kind of stuff is not good for anyone's career. So I had to jump in and play the piano part myself. It is a particular pleasure to hear so many trumpet students these days practicing and performing my Opus 1. In the early 50s, I heard American jazz musicians on record and radio performing solos, which made my sonata sound elementary, and knew deep down and from the start that Elgert Howarth and I were right about its technical feasibility. Another informative encounter came in 1964 when the London Philharmonic commissioned my second fantasia on John Taverner's In Nomine, Taverner's the 16th century English composer. I met members of the orchestra crossing Waterloo Bridge away from the Royal Festival Hall, who told me the rehearsal had been abandoned and that the scheduled first performance had been postponed for a year or until I had revised the impossible trumpet parts. I just doubled them, for safety, in the woodwinds, and have regretted this bitterly at every recent performance. Much later, as composer-slash-conductor of the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, the BBC Philharmonic and the Royal Philharmonic, constructive and I hope mutually beneficial relationships were established between me and the brass players. They encouraged me, with critical help, to write even more demanding parts, particularly the trumpet sections. I remember that when the Philharmonia Orchestra commissioned my fifth symphony, Richard Watkins, for the horns, and John Wallace, for the trumpets, as for the most virtuoso parts I could devise for the sections, and in recent years, I have conducted this work with many orchestras, including students, with no complaints, almost, and excellent results. How things change. I went on to write more music for John Wallace, including an impossible concerto, which we performed together in many countries. Recently, I wrote an opera commissioned jointly by the Royal Academy of Music and the Juilliard School, which has trumpet parts that would have been too much for professionals only 10 or 15 years ago. The performances were absolutely brilliant. I relate these incidents from my personal experience only to point out how much the trumpet world has changed in the last half century or so, and to encourage trumpeters and composers of all kinds of music to develop fruitful, constructive musical relationships at all stages. Recently, as master of the Queen's Music, I have developed a musical relationship with Neller Hall Military School of Music, opening up a whole new world of compositional possibilities and orchestral practice. I have used military trumpets in three works already, including most recently an overture for the last night of the proms. You never, ever stop learning about the trumpet. And with that, I give you John Wallace.
we're going. So uh, I wanted to talk to you about a couple things that I think you have an interesting point of view on. One is the British music scene, because we got some interesting news this week, at least here in America, that uh, it's not looking great for the London orchestras for the future financially. It mirrors the news that we're getting here in America for the American orchestras, even the major ones. And then the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was a subject that I'm starting to write something about that is academic degrees, particularly the doctorate in musical arts that don't seem to quite correspond to the rest of academic culture in other fields of study that we don't, we're not getting the, the volume of researchers that we should be getting for the number of doctorates we are offering. And I think you're a unique person to talk about this because you are one of our few true researchers that have done significant work for us with your trumpet book and with the Cambridge Companion. Um, and I know with your current project with Marco, that's going to be interesting too. There's an encyclopedia as well that I did with Trevor Herbert and Arnold Myers, Wikipedia of Brass Instruments for Cambridge. It just came out in 2018. Oh, I don't have that one. I'll have to order it. Yes, no, it's... It's in paperback now, so it's quite cheap for what it is. So um, where, where do you want to start, John? I just want to let you talk because I could listen to you read a recipe and everyone would be happy. No. <laughs> well, it, I, suppose the, I suppose the state of the orchestras. I, I, I do think, you know, I read the paper that you wrote, which was uh, uh, very accurate to, in many ways, the orchestras have been flogging dead horses for many years, and there's not much life left in those horses. All of those horses are in acid bath, really being sort of uh, dissolved away to nothing. So um, the orchestras in London have been great at reinventing themselves. I suppose the closest that you've got to a civic orchestra in London now is the LSO because it's attached to the, the city of London. It's got the Barbican and so on. But in reality, the London orchestras are bunches of freelancers, very much like, I suppose, the Vienna Philharmonic is comprised of a... It, it, it's on a just a, you know, 12 concert uh, season and it chooses its players from the Vienna Staatsoper, so it depends on that. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it's a marvellously um, flexible sort of organisation with no conditions of work, at least yeah, the, the players collectively make conditions of work for themselves and the managements make the best conditions of work that they can. But in Reality, it was musicians who invented the gig economy centuries ago, and uh, the, the London orchestras have always benefited from uh, boom and bust and, and crashes and new technologies and stuff coming in. And I wouldn't bet that they might not prosper in the new environment in the, in the future, uh, whatever that brings. And it's the most innovative orchestras that will win the day. I mean, up here in Scotland, we've got a couple of, you know, it's like the street orchestra of, of London. You know, the thing that um, Gabriel Prokofiev 
Prokofiev's uh, grandson started of, of just showing up, you know, outside a tube station or an apartment and do it, doing stuff. Also mixing it with some of the, the players. I mean, several of my students went to these things, coming forward and doing a rap number and, you know, mixing that with Beethoven, Mozart, absolutely everything. And that's what I thought, you know, all of the playing with on your laptop in an underground car park and doing all that, all of that, all, all, all of that sort of thing. That's where I thought uh, music was going before the crash. And that I think it's going, going to the groups that do that sort of thing. Up here, it's the Nevis Ensemble who play in St Kilda's, which is, you know, just about, you're just off the Hudson River, really. And, um, and uh, 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 you know, in remote places, and they take the name from the concerts that they did at the top of Ben Nevis, the highest mountain in Scotland. And so they go everywhere just doing flash mobs and supermarkets. And they're quite a serious group. They do lots of contemporary music uh, uh, as well. All young players, all will play for, you know, whatever money that there is. It's a sort of, it's a collective thing. The same with a group um, that I'm chairing, which was set up in really the, you know, deprived area of Glasgow Govan, where the shipyards used to be. You know, this place used to have a, a population of about 130,000, 40,000. It's just, a, just about a mile from central Glasgow. And now the population's down to about 26,000 and you know, big drug problems, all the, the usual inner city sort of stuff and generations of people out of work, all the rest of it. And we started up this orchestra and you, you know, it, it's just sort of enlivened the whole place. We started solo concerts outside the Salvation Army mobile uh, food bank as well on, on Wednesdays where, you know, cellists, guitarists, accordionists, you know, the fiddle player didn't turn up. <laughs> 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 you know, they give a, a solo concert and, and as soon as restrictions lift, we're going to be doing socially distanced concerts in the it's the oldest graveyard in Scotland from about the 8th century. It's shaped in, in a heart and it was the ancient, you know, centre uh, of Scotland when we all spoke, believe it or not, ancient Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we, we, but you see, we don't have any overheads. Uh, we just... We can put on a concert in three weeks, you know. So uh, what's happening is that the big institutions are really suffering. Big institutions with big overheads, concert halls that are shut. It takes me back to Mindful when I joined the Philharmonia, the second trumpet. He was called Roy Copestake, and he'd started playing for Gatti in the Bath Spa Orchestra when he was 14. And that was just, I think that was during the First World War because there nobody, everybody was away uh, getting, you know, everybody over 14 was being hung, drawn and quartered on the, on the front, you know. So he started then and by the mid twenties, he was in the Peckham Picture Palace Orchestra. I mean, I'm just saying this because Music is, and, uh, and the work for musicians is very technology driven and technology tends to drive the adoption of new genre 
So um, in the, <laughs> he was playing this picture, uh, silent for the silent cinema orchestra. And of course, if you have a big building, and this is what all the uh, concert halls are finding, you have to sweat the asset, you have to do lots of things. So they would do maybe six showings of, of, of films during the day and then variety in between. So he was in this variety and silent cinema orchestra. Talkies come along, 1929, 30, 31, blam, 60,000 musicians in Britain out of work practically overnight. So what did he do then? Well, the big genre that came, I'd come across with, um, uh, you know, the Harlem, Harlem Hellfighters, you know, in, ni in 1917, James Reese Europe, jazz thing, you know. There's a big, big craze uh, uh, for it. Of course, jazz developed very, very, very quickly. And everybody, I even got a, a book from 1928, a Louis Armstrong Hot Licks book that was bought in Glasgow in 1928, you know, so that it got out very, very quickly. And so he left to join Henry Hall's dance orchestra, which was, you know, a pale imitation <laughs> of American jazz, you know. So, uh, so he played there for about five years and then the LPO started up. And so he joined the LPO, uh, the one for the Monarch Orchestra. Then he went away to the war, you know, then, you know, it's not normal for society to be stable for as long as it's been. And all of this sort of, bad politics we're seeing at the moment is actually much more normal than the rational liberal you know <laughs> consensus that we've had for quite a long time even you know in even in the states you know between republicans and in democrats i mean nixon made you know despite the person he was he made many many advances you know of the obamacare type so there was this liberal consensus also we had the oldest democracy in the world. I mean, we keep talking about democracy, but the oldest democracy and the American one, which influenced the French Revolution and the big, and the big waves of democracy that sets through, through Europe, has been like, uh, you know, a, a, a moral leader uh, to a, a rules-based international system. And, you know, you've seen times when that's been uh, torn uh, apart, you know. You just have to listen to some of Franklin Roosevelt's speeches and stuff before the uh, Second World War, just to realize, you know, very similar to the situation we have now with very few democracies and all of these tin pot uh, dictators, you know, with these weird bullshit you know, shit for brains, ideas, and people are believing them, you know. And you find exactly the same thing now. I mean, the worst year for Britain in about the last 50 years was in 1976 when the International Monetary Fund came in. Inflation was about, it got up as far as 27% at one time, and the sick man of Europe. I mean, 1976 was the best year I, I had as a, as a musician in London, the pound was very cheap. Uh, recording was booming. We had Muti as a principal conductor and Mazel as the chief guest conductor. The recordings just, because music has always benefited, well, at least 
in the 20th century and in the you know 21st century music's benefited and the number of uh, musicians employed through, through through making a living through music has been really boosted by the technologies i mean it may have since about the early 90s it's begun to dip but i can remember uh, just thinking oh jesus in the 70s and 80s why didn't we have a similar sort of ppl performing uh you, you know uh rights sort of things for performers uh, like they had in germany because you get the berlin phil you know getting a new bmw every bloody year in the 80s and something <laughs> with the royalties coming in from all the recordings that they paid and played in we're reaching a far bigger audience than now you know the answer is how to monetize it the london orchestras are full of brilliant minds and brilliant people they will go through the floor and come back up again reincarnated as something else you know well, I, I wonder sometimes now that you brought up the recording, you know, I, I've I've struggled with this here in the United States. I, I think it's a different model in continental Europe, certainly because the state has decided as a whole that this is a part of their integral culture. So, you know, the, the Berlin Phil has to survive despite financial struggles. But here in the United States, where uh, everything relies so heavily on on private patronage, it's we've created a sort of backwards model as the goal where the, the the ideal goal of many organizations is to make everything free for the audience and that's all fine when the economy is very high because there's a lot of donation but what we're experiencing now is the first people to suffer are the musicians and the artists when everything goes away. And I don't think that now we have a culture in America where the individual consumer is used to paying for something uh, necessarily. No, no, no. I, I, music has become like a, a free commodity, you know, and uh, we've got to get our teeth more into Spotify. Um, I mean, it, it started to loosen up uh, uh, a little bit, but we really have to get our teeth into all of that, you know, just turn the tap on and music is um, just like a utility, you know. Uh, you pay more for your electricity. You do yes. pay for <laughs> utilities, you know. So if it's yes. a utility, okay. And so it's licensing and all the rest of it. So, I mean, what we have to do individually, I suppose, is all to try for our own little musical businesses is to get, 6,000 followers for them. I read this book. <laughs> You've got 6,000 followers, then you can probably start to make a little bit of a, a business. I mean, when you get up to the Lady, Lady Gaga stakes, then you know that's you really have got a business then. Uh, but it's a very, very crowded, babble like, you know, it's like the Tower of Babel uh, environment. And to stand out from, from all of that, you need very, very deep boots of integrity, I think, you know. Uh, but uh, don't worry about the, you know, the donations and stuff like that, because um, the rich people are going to get richer from this. You just see, I mean, the stock market's been up and down, but, you know, there's a calculation in today's Observer, one, uh, one of our oldest newspapers, that uh, since the, you know, the richest people have got richer, 
by about 25 billion in Britain since the beginning of the, they, they, they've just been buying up everything on the cheap, you know, and seeing it come up. So, yes, and, you know, most rich people, uh, <laughs> I've got a conscience, <laughs> and then, you know, it's just, it's just a gift that they've got that I don't possess and probably you do possess of, become, of, of making money. You know, I've never been able to make any real money. You know, I'm, I'm still sort of trying to mend the roof on my bloody house, you know? <laughs> which keeps rotting away, you know, rots away, and jackdaws peck the way in and make new nests, which rot the timbers again. And because you can't, you, can't you can't turf the little chicks out when they're keeping that. Good. So, uh, and so th those are my concerns. They're not about the Dow Jones or <laughs> the market's going up and down and Christ, I couldn't stand being rich and having all of those problems. I, I just feel that, you know, the endowments of the American orchestras should be quite, should be quite large. But uh, I mean, it's always, it, it's always amazed me how unionized uh, music is in the states uh, as well is and how the backstage at the met and so he's so unionized and the amount those guys earn so i mean if i was running the met i would be a bastard i'd crash the whole thing and start again <laughs> you know I'd, <laughs> I'd go down to the atlanta labor exchange or wherever and right <laughs> again and retrain you know <laughs> you know i i think this is also part of what you know the american orchestras are they've gotten used to living with so much that i don't they don't i don't realize i don't think they realize how unnecessary some of what they do is i i know tom stevens was used to talk endlessly about the reversal of the orchestral schedule in america that it used to be you would rehearse for a week for two concerts and then it became you rehearsed two days for four concerts and that that kind of forced orchestras into being safer with their repertoire, but also being safer with their hiring options. And the added part that he always mentioned is who said, and I mean, what country decided that we needed something like the Metropolitan Orchestra that switches opera every two weeks? I mean, that's unheard of, that, that they can do a, a Wagner cycle in a month, that not even the Vienna State Opera does that. It's the, and, and of course, it's what you're saying, the staff to be able to pull off doing large Verdi operas and large Wagner operas every season yeah. is absurd. It's, it's, un, it's, it's unheard of in the history of humanity. And maybe it should be unheard of to some degree because it's unsustainable. Yes, it does seem infeasible that the big orchestras and the big opera houses and so will survive in the way that they were. but. I bet you they do, <laughs> and uh, 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 because there's so much uh, civic pride wrapped up in those things. Okay, the uh, musicians may have to go through a period of this, the whole organisation. It's the organisation, really. I mean, it, it, <laughs> God, I've been watching this Michael Jordan television, and it's fantastic. And the, of course, the manager Jerry goes on about. The organization's bigger than any one player. 
of course, you know, when Michael Jordan goes away and plays baseball, we find out <laughs> the effect of that. So the players are very important. But I do think that the most important thing is retaining the organized. So if they can retain the integrity of the organizations, they might have to go leaner. Uh, they might have to change the, their output. They might have to, you know, do stuff like I'm doing with we're doing with the Glasgow Barns uh, Barons and do asylum seekers and musicians in exile and you know do gooder type things because the great thing about music is that it's an abstract force for good for society you know and you know it is about good and evil blah 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 but. Even in Wagner, I think, <laughs> good triumph some of the time. And, uh, you know, okay, you know, a few orchestras might have to shrink to ensemble modern size or London Sinfonietta size, you know, 14 players. But you can still play Mahler symphonies on that size. The group, and they sound quite good. You know, in fact, you know, the string players enjoy it more because they don't have to play with another, you know, 60 people, you know, in <laughs> synchrony, which is, you know, good God, how do orchestras do it? I mean, when you hear a great orchestra play, you just think, wow, human beings are just sort of rooted into, we know what, we're telepathic, we know what's going to happen before it happens. That's how these big orchestras uh, 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 work. So, I mean, we might be without that for, 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 quite some time but when it does come back i mean after the war um here the second world war there was a tremendous uh, renaissance of music that's when you know the philharmonia and the rpo the royal philharmonic orchestra just started in that time just after the war and uh with all the players coming back there was a tremendous resurgence of music but you had policy makers at the head of it, the whole thing. Like, you, 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 uh, they were determined not to make the same mistakes that they made at Versailles after the First World War. So there was no massive reparations from Germany. So America came in with the Marshall Plan. So without America's Marshall Plan, there'd be no culture in Germany. You know, they reconstructed the whole thing. And then in Britain, we had John Maynard Keynes, the great economist, the liberal economist, who, you know, became the first chair of the Arts Council, the British Arts Council. And he, he was the one who, who you know, you re, rebuild the culture first, to, first, so you can rebuild all the buildings and rebuild society on the backs of that. It took a long time to rebuild bits of, uh, you know, uh, London and Glasgow and, and all the places that got bombed, Coventry and so on. You know, there were still big bomb sites in the 1960s, as there were in East Germany, for example. You know, so the rebuild of Europe and the economy took a long, long time and they started with culture first. So, I mean, I'm writing letters to all the politicians here and asking to see them and asking to go and see the various uh, COVID recovery committees that there are. So we can just, you know, talk about these things because people have got a very, very sketchy idea of history now. And they ha also have a very sketchy idea of how education works and how learning works.
and how economies get built. You can't, I mean, all of the attempts to build an economy centrally have been dismal, dismal failures. You just have to look at, you know, the, the, the and agriculture too, the, the huge famines in the Ukraine with Stalin from the early 30s. You know, when Dokshitz, uh, when I, Dokshitz told me that when he was, uh, you know, he, he, how old was he? He was 10 or 11 and he walked uh, with his parents from Kiev to all the way uh, to Moscow, 800 miles, and enlisted in the in the uh, Red Army as a bugle boy, you know, as a because of the famine, you know. And then you get to have the same things with Mao in in China, and it it's Russia would probably be a, a richer country than the States now if it had just kept a you know if if it hadn't had its revolution and 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 you know run a more capitalist democracy sort of thing yeah it's especially because it's such a resource rich country i mean and it's huge i mean and the country itself is massive and it has a connection to both coasts it's like it's a rare thing that that ended up being a failed state considering its geographic location yeah who knows what will happen but i remain quite excited i mean we're <laughs> We're putting on this sort of symphony of thousands with kids for uh, making music, international music, music, international making music day next Sunday, Midsummer's Day, and it's bloody great fun. You know, we've got everybody sort of made this guide track for them, and I mean, it's not Mahler's Symphony of a Thousand. It's in fact, it's the Beatles' Hey Jude because we've got little kids to profession and everybody do, do, doing it but in the end we'll have about a thousand little pictures on that screen everybody will have fun uh doing it and we'll keep kids learning so that when we come out of of this there'll be some at least supply side for down the road for the musical economy because it's all the critical mass of musicians that bubble up geniuses like you who come up with new ideas you know <laughs> so uh, i'm sorry not to give you a you know a blueprint for the future but uh, <laughs> the blueprint for emerge nobody has the blueprint yet but you're right I, I i am hopeful that a blueprint will emerge and i've been interested in this time and i i want to See what you think, because I think much of the problem that classical music is facing and what I'm seeing online and what people are posting and sharing is that we are, I'm personally starting to realize what, what parts of it are relevant to today and what part of it we have glorified but ultimately has no context in our culture. And I, I think part of that has a huge amount to do with what you just mentioned, that people have a very skewed vision of history and a very skewed vision of the arts. And there's kind of a disconnect between why we do things and the meaning that they can have for the audiences or for the people that are, you know, consuming them. I, in America, we face that problem hugely because I, I don't think, despite everything that, and the great artists that we've had in classical music, quote unquote, classical music in, in the United States, I don't think that the language of this country is Brahms or Beethoven. and for me, the evidence is that the greatest 20th century artists from America have nothing to do with classical music. I mean, it's uh, Miles Davis and Louis Armstrong and Nina Simone and 
James Brown and <laughs> and even the current flock, they, they don't seem to have anything to do with what we do. I often question at what point the concert houses gave up their position as a relevant institution culturally for the moment that it's like we we kept doing Brahms after the Second World War when we had already had two or three generations of new composers that we weren't yet adopting, which was new, right? I mean, if you look back to when Mahler was conducting in Vienna, it was mostly new music by new composers. I, I'm just curious what you think is the thing we can, this is a huge opportunity in my opinion. What would give the orchestras the relevance they need in order for audiences and the people of citizens of countries to want them back so badly? You'd probably have to change the instrumentation, you know, it's a bit strange. Uh, it would, you know, have to be, you know, as big a, uh, as, as big a revolution has happened when the orchestra sort of got bigger and bigger and bigger. Of course, you'd have a variegated audience of um, uh, people who wanted uh, different types of, of music, but uh, I, I, I would say that um, you know the orchestras would just have to throw all preconceived notions of taste out of the uh, out of the out of the window and play music which was totally of of the moment, whatever that, that was. You'd need to have quite a lot of courage to do it. I know that Mark Gould has been talking about amplification and all the rest of it. But I think that's a question of in instrument instrumentation uh, as well, what the instruments. And I think they would have to be singing in most concerts as well. You know, it, it's all of the, the stuff that they started doing in the 60s. You know, we've seen it like, you know, Berio, Stockhausen, but, you know, Boulez always had a guitar in the orchestra and <laughs> stuff, uh, stuff like that. And uh, we, we did all of this sort of avant-garde stuff. It's now time to sort of bring all of that, all of that together into a new, new popular uh, style. I mean, I, you know, I've been doing a, a bit of retro music uh, myself at, at the moment with a friend of mine, Andrew Powell, that I was at um, university with. And when we were at university, there was uh, Tim Suster and Roger Smalley were the composers in residence. And they used to do all this early, you know, it was in the early infancy of electronic music. And they started this group called Intermodulation, which uh, Andrew joined, they played at the proms and they went on university tours and international tours and things like that. And and uh, Andrew then, you know, he got asked to do stuff like, you know, oh, well, you do these arrangements for Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel. So he, he did all these things and we did them again recently. We got an orchestra together, called it the Wallace Collection Orchestra. It had strings, it had the whole lot amplified with Steve Harley and all these old guys from Cockney Rebel back. And it was, I mean, Andrew's intros to this were like 
Ligeti, Lutoslavsky, Burial, all the rest of it. And then it went to Steve Harley. And then you had all Steve Harley's audience and they were mainly in the 60s and 70s by now, you know, up on the chairs, swaying about, swinging. I've never been, a, a, you know, a played myself in a, in a concert that was just so absolutely joyous with a full symphony orchestra there doing a blend of rock pop, blah, 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 and, uh, and lig ligety. And then, then Andrew went on to Kate Bush and he produced Wuthering Heights and all of that sort of stuff and blah. And then after a and did film music and everything. And then he came back to writing again. Now, that sort of eclecticism, I feel that there's almost a room now for a new eclecticism in the you know, 21st century. I mean, the problem I think is you were talking earlier about DMAs and uh, and you know it, it's generally uh, music education, especially instrumental education, goes for orthodoxy all the time, and it's you know you play as you said there's dynasties of players and blah blah blah, and it goes on for bloody sort of centuries uh, this this sort of thing and. Uh, Yes, I mean, it, it's great to have a genetic family tree where your playing comes from, but you don't stay on the main trunk most of the time. You know, you, you go off on a branch of your own until, it's, you know, somebody saws it off behind you. Students seem to be a little bit more conformist now than they were. I don't know if that's true or not because I, I've been out of it for about five or six years. So, I mean, I can tell you, I can tell you from my experience here, um, everyone wants this path here in America, for, for example, I, I think except for schools like CalArts and maybe the Oberlin School, everyone is on this one path in the classical music departments uh, to be an orchestral whatever, violinist, trumpet player, but it's the one path. And what is crazy is that during that path, nobody strays. That's the part to me that, that is shocking, that you don't see somebody on that path saying like, mm, I'm not into this path. Everyone just really kind of keeps feeding the same mentality that I think that that lie is sort of collapsing now in the sense that it, it used to be sold that the only true career you could have in music at, in America was as an orchestral trumpet player. Mm -hmm. and we're about to see a lot of orchestras close down, I'm sure, and that's not going to be true. Because of that, what you're talking about, the dynasty of, of players, we're not really teaching independent thinking. And, and there's a, been a few teachers here in America that did. I mean, like Mark Gould is a great example of, of that, in my opinion. Um, I think his students really, a, a lot of them vary so wildly that you can have somebody like Stephen Burns, who also you know also mike Sachs studied with him and they're they're two separate people completely different in thought and in process but most teachers are not interested in that mm -hmm. most teachers are interested in putting everyone on a path and most students are interested in staying on that path which is just shocking to me that there's no it's what you're saying there's no sort of independent thinking about what do i actually love to do and what brought me to music and i it, i found i find it especially telling when you ask most people that are trying to be an orchestral trumpet player to show you what they're listening to 
very few of them are listening to orchestral music. They're listening to metal and jazz and pop. And so the question is, how, how, how devoted are you to this path that you claim is the one forward when you're so close to it, to other things? I really learned to play in an orchestra through playing in an orchestra. And it's very difficult to learn to play with other people on your own. Uh, you know, so um, maybe when the, you know, the Zoomosphere of what are these Zoomiverse uh, <laughs> is tied up to low latency, you know, and we can do everything in real time, then maybe you will be able to learn in a virtual orchestra online if it's mixed properly you'd have to have some mixing uh, at all but you know that should be possible at most schools that you get geared up uh, whether it can ever be the same as being in the same room but then you know most recordings that we hear of classical pieces are you know they're they're chemically treated you know they're they're full of chemicals, you know, that's, it's, 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 and it's, it's all been sort of cooked, you know, it's all been cooked in a big editing formula and the digital, you know, stuff. And it's, you know, been boosted, it's and balanced and everything after, uh, afterwards. So, I mean, it's no more unnatural to that, to have zoom low latency and to, to do stuff on, on distance um and that might be quite quite good but um it's it's disturbing just to have a a, a one track mind you know to but then i suppose that's how you get such good players because they they concentrate on the techniques of the instruments and production of the sound and playing stuff you know so they end up um as excellent uh, technical players but for me music is just you know it's basic to our humanity and and we're hardwired into it and everybody not even musicians everybody's hardwired into it so there is a big need uh, for musicians out there it's just to reach the people uh, with it, you've got to have more than sound and technique. You have to have deep feeling for the music and a deep compassion for humanity. Those are things that you can't really teach and you can only learn through experience and through making lots of mistakes and through actually sitting there and playing in an orchestra. Um, but maybe the days are gone when, oh, maybe they're not gone because the LSO are talking about now bringing back three concerts a day, you know, just hour long with our distance audience and everything. And uh, that would be quite good. You do a morning concert, you know, for kids, you do a matinee, you do an early evening, no longer than an hour because, you know, you'd need to take a pee at times, you know. Uh, <laughs> and the, I mean, the, but the whole business model of halls is shot through because you make more money on the bar than anything else, especially with some of the prices are around. You just can't have bars at the moment, you know, and in, in enclosed spaces. 
the public health people are going to keep our halls closed for some time to come, I, I feel. But this vaccine that everybody's bought, you never know. It could be a miracle. But uh, who knows? <laughs> we shouldn't count on it for now. <laughs> now, I, I want to transition to the other part of the conversation that I wanted to have with you because you brought up already the students and DMA yeah. and all this. Mm -hmm. I have a couple questions before we start. Yeah. I, I, I know that in continental Europe, but I'm not sure about the UK, uh, the doctorate in musical arts doesn't really exist, right? If, if you wanted to go into a post uh, a post education degree it would have to be a phd yeah. in a subject yes we don't have uh, we, we don't have a dma no postgraduate degree uh, research degree i mean you can have a taught masters but we we don't generally have taught doctorates now i thought it was quite a good idea to have a taught uh, or a doctorate with a larger degree of um of teaching but i don't think it's really happened or or caught on here so just uh, amazed that the dma is so popular in the states but i suppose what it does for people is that it gets you into an advanced peer pool with everyone else from which opportunities spring perhaps a doctoral degree, to my mind, should have some... I mean, how much originality is there in a DMA? I mean, that's kind of the thing. So <laughs> I think you and I have a similar thought. My grandfather was an academic of language in Colombia, uh, of the Royal Academy of Language. So, I mean, this is a man who spent his life researching the intricacies of the letter L. You know, it, it's... It's kind of a ridiculous pursuit, but we've always valued academic pursuits because they can yield something very meaningful. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the same kind of in the sciences and in 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 almost any other PhD that we can think mm -hmm. of, right? In my experience, I, and this is something why I, I've always been baffled by the DMA, I have a lot of friends outside of music, and of all my friends, I know one person with a PhD in economics. One. But of my friends in music, I know so many, even just trumpet players with a doctorate degree. And what strikes me is that when I talk to my friend who's a PhD in economics, he's a professor at a university in Mexico now, and he is putting out original research every month. I mean, papers and papers and papers. And when I talk to my friends that have a DMA, uh, their dissertations were at most 10 pages. There's, there, there's not much interest in general in the academic pursuit, which they most of them do this degree to get to improve their shot at getting a job teaching at a university which has become very important particularly here in america yes. yeah now i don't know how realistic that is when you're talking about the top institutions as far as like i don't think juilliard demands their trumpet professors have a doctorate nor does the colburn school nor northwestern or rice or any of the top tier so i i almost feel like it's the the institutions that don't compete at the highest international level that are demanding their professors to have doctorates. In I suppose if, the, if you have a DMA, the institutions know that there's a, a general level of administrative competence to have got that. The person will be able to write 
they'll be able to organize their time to a high level. Uh, so I suppose it's quite rigorous uh, to, to get it, but it would be so much better for everybody, including the individuals that got it, if they had to do some original research as well. I mean, there's so much from the past, and there's so many problems to solve in the world as well, in the world of music too, and so many inequalities and, oh, you know, it, there's just sort of, you know, we, we create more problems than we solve as human beings. So there's a, and, and uh, you know, it's, just that spirit of an, an inquiry. So I'm, I'm not going to diss the DMA because I don't know enough about it. Friends of mine, like Jim Gurley and so on, when he went to the States, he got a DMA. Because I suppose it's like doing your civil service exam over here, you know? <laughs> you do this high-level exam, it shows, yeah, that person's got an IQ of such and such. They can, <laughs> they can do that. So it's just a mark of, yeah, yeah, I can do my sums, I can organize, I'm, you know, well-organized person, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, you, know you, you can rely on me to run your department sort of thing. But, you know, <laughs> that's just a start. I mean, I suppose, I, I suppose most people when they're, they're, they're hiring do look for more than just that. You know, they look for the spark as well but you know if somewhere started to to deliver a really interesting dna or something like that then they would would it would you have to change the name to make it really interesting <laughs> <laughs> well i i guess my i i think that what where you can shed some light in this discussion because i agree the point is not to disparage yeah. the dma candidates I think I'm more interested. You seem to have always been able to find areas of research that were, uh, when not necessary, ne like they were at least incredibly useful later. Like reading reading your trumpet book or reading any of what you've put out, academically speaking, it's a resource for anyone in our field that we can go take this book out and find out what we need to find out, even if we're not going to read the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and that, to me, has always been sort of the point of having people doing research in academic institutions. It's that academic institutions allow professors that are solely dedicated to research to promote things that we don't have time for, that we need a hero like you to all of a sudden to come up and do it for us instead of, you know, if somebody had offered you a position to just do it. And... I find that in the trumpet, and this is where you might shed some light because I just don't know enough, the researchers we owe the most to were not necessarily tied to, they were kind of like independent academics. It's like you and uh, Ed Tarr, and there's a handful of others that went out and did kind of that deep research we're more used to in, say, a PhD in the sciences uh, or in art literature or, so, or in in English literature or PhD in art history. Um, I, I want to know what are some areas of study that you think are lacking resources that could unlock important things for trumpet right now? I suppose we've always been on the fringes of serious academia because the, you know, originally interest in music, musical instruments, brass instruments, and so on was... Uh, it was an antiquarian uh, pursuit rather than a 
you know, academic pursuit, even the, the Galpin Society and so on. It was um, very much in the, you know, Victorian type um, amateur enthusiast sort of uh, tra 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 tradition, but not to belittle it. Uh, it's actually people that have had a, a really deep passion for brass history and, 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 and so on, the historic brass society. I think, you know, it's maybe something that from about the 80s, 90s and so on, that brass players started to get important academic jobs, not for brass per se, but just historians of music or researchers in music who perhaps happen to specialize in areas of the Renaissance where the, the invention of the, the trombone and the position of the trombone and Renaissance music. And so I, I think, you know, the Historic Brass Society, which um, was, you know, set up in New York by Jeff Nussbaum about 1988, brought together passionate amateurs and academics alike. Again, Ed Tarr was just like an inquiring, very, very inquiring mind. I mean, he started his career, he did Kaggle, he wrote, wrote in pieces, and Stockhausen wrote in pieces and stuff like that, as well as him just thinking, how did these instruments used to sound? And, uh, and then doing all of these editions. And the guy that um, collected about 2,000 pieces or so, this Robert Minter, again, who, he was a, a dropout at Cambridge University, who, when he dropped out from Cambridge University, he was a, became a bus driver in Cambridge, but he had befriended Charlie Cudworth, who was the librarian and historian at the Pendlebury Library. And... Uh, and and he got into writing new editions, and then he got a job uh, as a second-hand spare parts for aeroplanes, which took him all over Europe, to Eastern Europe as well. So he went to all of these strange uh, places, and uh, they were then in Poland, you know, and so on to these old castles, and he, he got all of these... Uh, copies of manuscripts and stuff. And that's where I got a lot of my, did a lot of my research, got a lot of the pieces for records and so on. So the, the, the fact is that there are still piles of old music everywhere, which hasn't been discarded because it's no good. Music just gets discarded because new stuff comes along. The old people die off and every generation gets its it's new music. I mean, that not all music makes its way into print. We've probably got more music in print now because of Sibelius than ever. The places to look, if you're interested in old music, it doesn't have to be original music. Old brass band uh, libraries, I mean, most of them have gone now. But there's the, the social history of what sort of music brass players used to play. I find that, that, that very interesting. Places like the Charamela Real in, in, in Sintra, near Lisbon, um, in Portugal, you know, they've still got lots of music from the period that came after the natural trumpet 
music. I've got uh, a, a friend of mine had been researching that, also sort of keyed bugle music and all the rest of it. It was like La Grande Curie in Versailles, you know, it was just like the stables, but that's where the musicians played, you know, because <laughs> they played on horseback and all the rest of it. And of course, those bands went on, you know, you know, after the after the French Revolution. You know, there's also about 2,000 pieces in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, uh, which were written by the Gossacks and composers like that, and Jardin, Hyacinth Jardin, his brother Louis, and they're all for, you know, okay, the trumpet parts might not be interesting for uh, players, but they're written for between octet and, and and small military bands. In each arrondissement of Paris, they had these bands, uh, which played very, very exciting stuff. Everywhere you go, there's these libraries just, you know, up to the roof with stuff that has got some brass uh, music in it. And it's just amazing what is still being discovered. I mean, when Trevor Herbert, you know, got called to go to Kefartha Castle just have to look at the, you know, few instruments and uh, uniforms and things like that, and found that they still had all of the and these sort of part books and everything that was almost intact. And you know, in Wales in the eighteen late eighteen thirties, forties, they'd been importing Ullman rotary valve instruments and came from Vienna because they just wanted the best, you know. And uh, there's weird things uh, like that happening all over the place. And I would say that, you know, for, for, the, for Americans, uh, probably, you should be looking at the last hundred years. Tremendous sort of richness, I think, from the, you know, the growth of Tin Pan Alley. And uh, you know the from about the 1870s, 1880s onwards, when the publishing houses really got going in in New York and uh, Cincinnati and other places like that. And um, of course, you know, modern snooty people might have to suspend the taste because a lot of the stuff is very popular. It's like air varies and so on. But if you play these pieces on old instruments in the style to which of it, then you can, uh, I, I personally love playing that, that period of music. But then there's um, 20s, 30s, you know, all of these pieces by composers like George Antile that Tom Stevens was hoping to, I don't know if he ever got around to recording some of these quartets by George Antile. But there's loads and loads of stuff. You know, there's the, we've got very short attention span as human beings. <laughs> we've all heard of fanfare for the common man, you know. But the, the same orchestra that Gunther Schuller was a member of, actually, and I think it was in 1943-44, got about another 17 or 18 of these of these fanfares by composers of Eugene Goosen's uh, commission commissioned them. So there's you know eighteen fanfare for the common man out there, and everywhere you look, there's that music from the past 
But again, you know, people send me new pieces all the time, a brass ensemble and everything. There is just, there's no shortage of, of music uh, to do. I would say, I would sort of advise people to get bored very more quickly with just perfecting the same old rubbish that they play all the time and uh, get new repertoire from the future, the present and, and, and the past and the recent past as well. We think, well, I tend to think of the 40s and the 50s as quite, and the 60s as quite recent. But for younger people, the aren't so recent and there's a hell of a lot of music from there that's worth really, really researching. John Miller has just started to research, you know, the Philip Jones Brass Ensemble. And uh, he's got the whole library. Ursula gave him the whole library. They've got it at the Royal Northern in Manchester. And the pieces that are in there have never been heard more than once. And it's not because uh, they're not good pieces. It's because they're very, very difficult. There's a piece by Henson in there. Have you ever come across a piece by Henson called Fragment, Fragmenta aus ein Show? No, I haven't. It, what, what's the instrumentation? It's for quintet, because in 1971, Henze wrote an opera for, where was it? Oh, it was the Berlin Staatsoper. He wrote an opera. And because he didn't get on with the orchestra, he got in, he got in the Philip J- Jones Brass Ensemble and what the Fires of London and, oh God, Stomu Yamashita, is that? No, no, I've got that wrong. Big, big percussionist, Japanese percussionist, you know. But, and uh, that was the instrumentation for the whole thing. So Gary Howard got Henser to distill all the quintet music from it into, into a piece. But again, I, I mean, it was, the, it was one of these sort of pieces that had come out of the student demonstrations in 1968. Very, very, 1968, very similar to the latest, um, you know, Black Lives Matter sort of uh, thing going on. Because then, then 1968, all the students were tearing up paving stones and throwing them through windows in the Champs-Élysées and stuff like that. So, um, so it's that sort of, uh, it's it's that that sort of piece. Now, you you say that it was, Part of the reason it's not popular is because it was unplayable or deemed too difficult, right? I know. I suppose that the time for the Bader Meinhof gang type uh, compositions is probably, you know, but looking back at it now, it's probably been uh, long enough uh, that, I mean, when we played it, we played it quite recently. We thought it was quite ear-easing, you know? Okay. But you, you've had a history with pieces like these, and I... I... I wonder how you, I've never talked to you about this. I know I've ta- I talked a lot when Tom was alive to Tom about it, and I've talked to Hokan about it. Um, this notion that it, people like you, I mean, you, your work particularly with Peter Maxwell Davies, I mean, w- works like the concerto, but also Lydney for the, the Lydney for uh, a ruined chapel. Those works are so tremendously difficult. And up until maybe a couple of years ago, even at Chosen Vale, we never heard 
the litany and then all of a sudden you start seeing more people picking it up there's also a trumpet quintet you know like the like the clarinet quintet of mozart i asked him to write a trumpet quintet so it's for string quartet and trumpet it's published by boozy and hawks it's a fabulous piece actually again it's very serious and it lasts about 40 minutes you know it's a good wow. half of a concert but you do all these things but you know people practice enough so they should be able to play it if they just uh, if they're just more imaginative with their practice and just stretch themselves a bit more instead of just trying to do this all this sort of uh, stuff you know it's just it's just a waste of their lives they should you should get on the internet and order this from or they they probably sort of hack into it and get it for nothing uh, but you know get this trumpet quintet and play it with your local string quartet you could probably even do it on zoom you know a bit of low latency you could you could do it now john when you were doing and premiering these works what was there a feel did you feel and this is what i want to know because i know tom felt this way very strongly that he was premiering these works but in 20 years there was going to be piece of cake that like even if he was struggling with it or it seemed very daunting, it was not going to be daunting for somebody someday. Mm. And I, I've talked to Hokan and Hokan said the same thing about uh, even like Endless Parade uh, to him seemed so difficult when they wrote it. And it's still difficult, but looking back, it's not the most difficult thing in his repertoire anymore. Mm -hmm. He teaches master classes where people play these things. And I, I know that Peter Maxwell Davies' Concerto was picked up by many people after it was written and did you feel at the time that you were you were getting these pieces for you but that they were gonna easily become part of the repertoire or did it seem to you at the time like oh this will never catch on well, no no i thought that they were all playable and that they would you know the, the, the thing about the music by professional composers like that is that the everything that they write is is playable uh, really in little bits you know it's playing the whole thing uh right through it's getting under the skin of the of the music it's not just notes and and so on so i, I always thought it was uh playable and I, I thought that you know there were many players who could play it at the same time as i was playing it if they just in my period of when I was a player, it's just that it needed a lot of focus and concentration and and a methodology of practicing it to 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 do it to do it well. And you know, I didn't do it that well at the first few performances. It took me. Uh, I had to revolutionise my practice really to get my head around it. It was rather embarrassing that Bernstein came along to the first London performance. I've got a photo of him somewhere here, giving me one of the big Bernstein hugs, because he was a friend of Maxie's, you know, that, no, I always felt they were playable, although I was inadequate to the task, and that there were, you know, you just listen to trumpet players playing, and you know they can play that stuff. You know, it's just, do they have the application 
or even the motivation to play that sort of music. I always wrote angular music myself with these awkward leaps and stuff like that. I love it. I love all of that, that, that sort of thing. It's min, many times that's easier to play than just do re mi. It was a fantastic privilege to you know, step out into the stage and to do the first performances of some of these pieces. It was just, I just thought, this is great. This is why you became a player, you know, is to do this sort of thing. And, you know, the best reception any piece I've ever played, ever had, I think was uh, 1993 with Epiclesis, the James Macmillan trumpet concerto. And we did that in the Usher Hall with Leonard Slatkin in the Philharmonia at the uh, Edinburgh Festival. And I tell you, it was just like walking up to the penalty spot and taking a penalty for Scotland. You know, that's how it felt. There was like, shh, the piece starts before you go on stage, really. With the, you know, there's all the hubbub in the hall and everybody starts playing. And of course, once, once the conductor and yourself walk on, it all goes quiet. And, that, and you can hear the orchestra just playing. It's a magical, magical beginning. And of course, Scottish composer stuff is all full of seabirds and you know, her distant horizons and snow-capped mountains over there. And yeah, it was just, uh, that, that was the, the best playing moment of my life, actually. I couldn't play the piece before I went on stage. I only got it about three weeks before. And uh, everybody else who's ever done this sort of thing will tell you, you just get this tremendous rush of adrenaline absolutely searing rush of adrenaline which makes it suddenly possible you 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 take you know about 0.2 of a second off your 100 meter time or you know <laughs> a bit that you need to just get a few more you know just just get 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 through it to and to do that you really have got to have that hunger just to do it and you know, part of the hunger comes from the fear of failure in front of a home crowd. You take go out to take that penalty and you sky it into the stands, you know, Jesus, you won't ever be able to be seen in Scotland again. You know, you'd be tarred <laughs> and feathered out of the bloody place. So, I mean, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure lots of us have felt like that. So, I mean, I remember the first time I played the, burial sequenza that was just in about the first year it had been uh written um i well i just thought christ this is um geez i mean it's just, it's just so i'd never seen anything like it before and just to get under the fingers and and uh so continuous uh, as well within quite a short time you know, there's people playing it from memory i mean it's the same with litany piece i mean mark o'keefe the first trumpet of the bbc symphony orchestra in scotland um you know plays litany from memory with all the you know, you know video of the of, of the church on sunday and uh, he walks around whilst he he's playing it and it's just i just think that's so fantastic 
I don't need to practice that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I remember in the first performance of uh, up in the St. Magnus Cathedral in Orkney, I thought, how am I going to get through this? Right. So I, I decided, right, I'm going to, there's, do you know that in, in St. Magnus Cathedral, there's a sarcophagus of King Hokan of Norway that got killed at the Battle of the Isle of Man in 1200 and something, you know? So when they came back, you know, bringing the dead came back, they bloody sort of, they had a storm and it sank just near Orkney. So they brought the sarcophagus back and put it in the, in the, in the, in the cathedral. Anyway, I just thought the only way I'm going to get through this is that I'll do the first movement in the back of the cathedral, then I'll walk to the front, you know, the people are, and then I'll walk up the stairs and right up to the very top of the tower for the last bit. So that just gave me <laughs> enough time to get the blood back into the chops and do all that sort of stuff to actually get through it. But I like all of these, these pieces. Um, it's all in the mind. I mean, you get yourself into a, once you've done it once, you can do it twice and it gradually, it gradually gets, gets better. But I, I was always my own worst enemy with uh, new, new pieces and psyching myself out with them where you should really psych yourself up. And I, I learned that with the Macmillan one that you could actually psych yourself up to, to play better but uh um it's uh it's a bit of a blood sport playing the trumpet you know at, at that level and i'm glad that i don't have to do it anymore I'm too old. <laughs> <laughs> well john uh just i i guess the last bit that i would be very interested in hearing if you're up to it if not we can do this another time i i want to know what your experience has been or was because now that's part of your life is also uh closed but your your experience as as the head of the conservatory up in in glasgow and uh running you know <laughs> politics behind the scenes for all these things mm -hmm. uh how, how was that and did, did what 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 made you feel that that was something you wanted to pursue at that time in your career oh it was wonderful uh, job to have I mean, it was, um, I wanted to go back to Scotland anyway. I'd had it up to about here with the, I mean, to a musical life in, in, in London, you know, I was doing so many things. Uh, I was, uh, I'd left the Philharmonia, but I was in the London Sinfonietta. I was doing the, the Wallace Collection. I was doing solos and I was running the brass department at the Royal Academy of Music. and. Um, you know, and oh, I didn't have a moment to myself. It was, it was, it was great. It was fabulous. It's one of the best times uh, of my life. Uh, but I was in my early fifties and just exhausted uh, with it all. The bottom had fallen out of the recording market. You know, um, uh, Wallace Collection. We'd had a heyday in the late 80s early 90s and uh in the 
we we had been going out, we've been doing things with a group of about 50 and we're down to a quintet, you know, down to five. And uh, I, I was fed up of just having to play the same pieces all the time. And, you know, and it's a sort of diet of Haydn and Hummel if you're not in the top rank of soloists. And um, so uh, <laughs> what I was, uh, you know, when this uh, job came up, I, I just sort of, uh, you know, somebody told me about it and I didn't expect to get it, but I, I went in, in for it. And it was just at a particular time when Scotland has got its own parliament, 1999, in 2001, I got the job. Um, devolved powers included education and culture and, uh, so they were very important. You could talk to ministers and all the rest of it. And so um, uh, I got the job and um, I, I found it was a fabulous organization. You know, it was um, not only music, it was drama and it was technical production, technical production arts as well. And um, it was very ambitious, very ambitious. And uh, the whole nation uh, was uh, very um, ambitious. And I was very ambitious. And um, so I sort of, they wanted me to be an agent of change. So I was an agent of change. It's not easy being an agent of change because you meet all sorts of uh, resistance from vested interest and also you know I like many of the opinions that we've shared uh, tonight I, I had then you know and I, I just didn't see how the music industry classical music industry could survive you know, where, where, where it was um, um, and uh, so um, we did all sorts of uh, uh, new things. We brought in our curriculum reform, made it interdisciplinary over everything, uh, managed to get bring in another art form, brought in dance, had ballet, which I've always thought, you know, if you don't have ballet in a conservatoire, you don't really have a pop, proper conservatoire. You know, the Juilliard's got drama and it's got dance as well. And I just, that was one of my, one of my, one of my arguments. And we had film and television as well. Managed to bring, bring that in. And also had more popular genres like musical theatre. And believe it or not, we didn't have jazz and managed to start jazz with Tommy Smith. And, um, so broadened the curriculum, but made it, we, it took us a long time to do curriculum reform. It's a very, very difficult thing to do in a conservatoire um, because uh, everybody wants to stay in their own very purest silos with the different ways of training and so on. And actually when you explode it all out, it has common principles to it. So we had a common academic framework, blah, 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 one thing and another. And so we, in the undergraduate course, we made a, compulsory uh, first module uh, was sort of the introduction to inter interdisciplinary working. And so 
students were forced to do the first bit. And I just thought if we didn't do that, you know, not, and I mean, that's a terrible thing to do, uh, really, but sometimes uh, you, you have to do what's right, you know? And uh, so uh, it was, I mean, the American guy, Aaron, running the piano department, Aaron Shaw, he was just fabulous. He just took to it. I mean, within about six weeks, we had tag teams at the piano doing, you know, the, doing the, you know, <laughs> the piano duet version of the, of Rite of Spring, you know, with the choreographed uh, thing with, with students, you know, and uh, those, and uh, it was, it was great. It, it, it was, it, it was good. It was a great battle with the funders and, and so on uh, to do this, but it was fantastic to have an education uh, funding council that took arts and cultural education so seriously. I mean, they took a lot of convincing and I got a lot of knockbacks and, uh, you know, there were things that you had to do as the chief executive sort of type, like, you know, taking 10% out of costs in a year, which we did the year before the financial crisis. So we were in a good state. I was, uh, I had a fantastic board uh, with um, uh, fantastic advice in it with some of the leading figures from, uh, you know, from Scottish and British industry in it. And uh, so I now, John, sorry to interrupt, but how did how did that happen? Did they were they appointed to you by the conservatory, or was that something that you brought to the table? Oh no, I I I was the boss. You know, they okay. I was the I was the but the the board were my boss. But but my question is the board that that board was it appointed by you or was that already in place when you showed up? It was already in place, but it had been reformed. It had quite a good good people on it. But by the fourth year when I was there, we'd managed to uh, through retirements and various other things, uh, we'd managed to assemble a board of all of the talents. So. I went chasing uh, Ian Valence, Lord Valence of Tamil, who'd been the uh, chief, ex the chair and chief executive of British Telecom. He'd taken it out of the old uh, post office and Margaret Thatcher's time and privatised the whole thing. At the time, he was on the the advisory board of of, of Siemens and Allianz and Germany uh, as well, and he was chairman of the. Select Committee for Economic Affairs in the House of Lords. I they had another a guy on the board who became vice chair. It was Sandy Crombie, Sir Sandy Crombie, and I'd been at school with Sandy. He was captain of the rugby club. You know, he'd left school and done at 16 and gone in virtually to be like, you start from the bottom, T-boy type thing at Standard Life. And he went up to become group uh, chief executive of the whole international caboodle, and he, he demutualized it. He's a you know fantastic actuarial mathematical brain, uh, this guy, and he'd also he'd built um, a new headquarters. He'd built a couple of 
350 million pounds sort of developments for standard life and stuff like that. Mostly been there. So I, I was surrounded by a lot of competence and people uh, who could do things and they guided me because of course, as a trumpet player, so that I, I wasn't skilled in everything that I had to do in this job, but I very quickly learned to surround my people with, myself with, with competent people and to work as a team and to defer, to get somebody else's advice when I didn't know stuff and all the rest of it. And so the team that we built up in drama and dance, and I, after a while, I managed to, first of all, got very good vice principal in uh, who'd come up through the music thing and who'd set up the music school called Rita McAllister. He was, a, you know, one of the leading Prokofiev uh, scholars in the, in the world. And she was absolutely great. And she moved on. And the head of drama, Maggie Kinlock, then was vice principal. And both of those did all of the detailed academic stuff that, in fact, academic administration I'm absolutely bloody hopeless I'm absolutely <laughs> bloody hopeless so uh, very very lucky to have to be part of a Scottish institution which was very strong technically the Scots are very good at technical accountancy and at running things and in governance very 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 good at that and so you know I remember sitting down one day with the senior management team because there hadn't really been a senior management team uh, before I went there. What Philip, uh, my predecessor, had done was that he'd uh, taken, you know, the senior managers out for lunch at the RAC club, you know, every <laughs> couple of weeks. And that was the senior management. I mean, it's a good way to manage. I, mean, I wouldn't knock it. But I, I, I was a little bit naive and I just thought I'd do things a little bit more by the book. So we had a senior management team and I remember them sitting me down after about six, six months and saying, uh, saying to me, um, well, John, you're, you, you, you're nice enough guy. You know, you're nice and affable. You know, everybody, uh, everybody likes you and stuff. What is it you're about? What do you want to do here? Nobody can fathom what you want to do, you know. And I just looked out the window and I looked back at them and said, well, I just want this place to be number one in the world. And they looked at me, the faces fell. And, you know, by the time I left, it, we'd got up to about number three in the world rankings. You, know, you had the, the Juilliard, the college and the academy in London and, and us. Well, and my friends that have gone there when you were still there and they totally agree with your estimation of their education there. I mean, there's no divide between. Well, there's Ryan, isn't he? He's, yeah. you know, he's swept all before him and the conductor stakes in the UK. That's right. Mancroft. <laughs> he's the only conductor ever to get a job and then to be made redundant practically <laughs> Immediately. by a virus the next day. You know? <laughs> but I, just, I think it's uh, fascinating that you made that transition with the same tenacity that you had. You follow through with everything else. Well, I mean, I think it, you know, I'm just um, terrible sort of 
uh, it's more important than life or death sort of thing, you know. So if I couldn't play a piece like Litany or the Macmillan, I'd be sort of glut practicing all bloody night. <laughs> get into that sort of model. And it was the same with the job that I used to work ridiculously. Perhaps looking back on it, you know, you, you work better if you don't work as relentlessly. But it, it, it was... Uh, it was a very, very exciting uh, time. I just took the same skills to the job as I have taken to, to music and the same passion for it, the same. You have to have empathy uh, in a management job for other people if you're really going to get them to um, do what needs to be done. There's some very painful things that you, you, know, you really have to get a an institution firing on all cylinders for it to be really good. And I'd, I'd been in several institutions like the, the, the new Philharmonia and the Philharmonia when Muti uh, was with it in that, that period when it was just absolutely firing on all cylinders. And it was just a wonderful thing to be in that. And it's a sort of, it's a chemistry thing that um, I'd, I knew I had to work very, very hard on um, in the in that job. So I I was quite hard to work with, I think, um, uh, uh, and I wasn't I wasn't a conventional uh, boss. I think I liked the students too much. I liked the company of the students too much. I liked the performances too much. I went to every <laughs> bloody performance, perhaps. And um, uh, and I probably uh, left at the right time before getting burnt out or before, you know, you outlived your usefulness because uh, a sort of person like me in charge of an institution like that I think I, I, I'd run a runway and I, you know, I wasn't good. I'd, I'd had a very, very lucky streak, a very, very lucky streak. So, uh, you know, I, I, I got, I got out while I was still lucky. <laughs> well, I think it had less to do with luck, but I do value that idea that once you've completed a task, it's, it's good to, especially back in institutions, it's good to yeah. let them, live off your fruit and that i i think many people will appreciate that you did that we don't get enough of that here with university presidents and chancellors they seem to hold on to dear life <laughs> oh yeah yes 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 it's uh it's a good job but i just felt you know it was like uh i'm not a nationalist but i'm a sort of like a patriot sort of thing i needed to do it for the country that you know had brought me up and everything so it was uh i i really uh felt it was very important for the country that and so that's why i attacked it with such a what such passion uh the the job because i do think a country's culture is very important uh to it so i mean america's got a great culture and uh i think you know you should be majoring on it at the at the moment over over them over there over mm -hmm. there <laughs> <laughs> all right john i want to be mindful of your time we've been going for a while i would love to talk to you again some other time this was great okay. um 
Is there anything before we go that you are working on right now that you want people to know about and that you're excited about? Um, yes, I'm working on this um, big Discovering Brass project through St. Andrews University with um, the f seven brass bands that are left in five and primary schools there. And um, because of the lockdown, we're going ahead with an, an online summer camp in July and we'll be taking 60 uh, trumpets to kids' houses, oh, couriering cool. them, complete beginners as part of this. That's so very cool. Everything from the complete beginner up to Ian Bowsfield's on it, you know, trombonist mm -hmm. who's in Berlin. I was with Vienna Philharmonic and Marco Blau and Christine Chapman. I will be some of the other, other teachers and we're having uh, guests like Trevor Herbert talk about the big things in brass history, Arnold Mars talking about how the instruments work and Peter Holmes talking about, you know, the, why the idiom of brass instruments is like it is from, uh, from the ancient world. So that's um, uh, one thing that I'm involved in. And then uh, the other thing is, um, oh, I wrote a symphony as well for brass band. Uh, it's, it's got second movement I wrote for Marco Blau and uh, the live electronics and stuff like that. And the first movement's got and natural trumpets in it, and the third, fourth movement's got a brass quintet. It lasts about an hour. It's going to be played by Black Dyke and uh, wonderful RNCM on April 26th, but it went the way of all viruses. Right. And uh, so, and I've just written a song cycle, the center of things, based on the, uh, you know, I'm no further from the center of things in Shetland than I am in. Tokyo, New York, and London. That's one of the lines in the in one of the poems. And um, as for trumpet, tenor, and, and piano, it lasts about 45 minutes. I'm into these sort of writing all these pieces at the moment. And I'm also I'm, I'm writing uh, an opera. Oh, really? Uh, wow. Whopsnizing Dad. It's, um, it's on a piece of flash fiction that my daughter-in-law wrote and it won a big prize. And uh, it's, it'll be for brass septet, for uh, period instruments, brass septet, and two singers. That's marvelous. Wow. It'll probably be on online opera. You know? <laughs> well, that's wonderful. John, thank you so much. This was fantastic. Okay. Thanks All right. very much. Thank Cheers. you, Bye -bye. John. Thank you so much Bye. for your time. Bye-bye.